So Jude is one of those tucked away letters of the New Testament. It's very hard to find, seldomly studied, and when people do read it, they really don't know what's going on. So I have a tough task ahead of me in explaining 25 verses of Jude, but I'm actually very excited to do it because Jude is, while on the face of it, you might say there's no relevance for us at Jerusalem Church. I think there is a a deep relevance for our church. And I want to first start with five issues, questions, concepts that Jude's going to address, and I'm sure at least one of these will be something of concern to you. And as we work through Jude, I'd like you to, to consider how Jude answers these issues. Number one, the question is, when troubling news inside the church appears, inside Jerusalem church, what is your anchor? What's your comfort? What serves as the starting point for your response when trouble arises in the church? Number two, what are the twin dangers that continually threaten the church that's committed to the gospel? It's good to know what those twin dangers are. What are they? Number three, what is the essential apostolic response and what then should be our response to those twin dangers when people pervert the gospel? So what should be our response to perversions of the gospel? Four, as you've just heard, infiltrators have come into the church, Jude's audience, spreading their wares. The question is, is this, unga- is this creeping in of ungodly infiltrators in the church a new phenomenon? Yes or no? Is this something new, something unexpected, when people pervert the gospel within the church? And also, how should saints respond when even other saints are being captivated by these false teachings and perversions? How should one saint respond to another saint who is caught up in the perversion of the gospel? And then five, uh, there are a lot of commands in the New Testament, a lot of ways to express gratitude. Jude is very gracious because he boils it all down to the essence of a true Christian posture of gratitude. So the last question is, boiling it all down, what is the simple, though not simplistic, essence of our gratitude response for the gospel? Perhaps you're overwhelmed today. What do I do in gratitude? Jude will give us a beautiful liturgical formula of a proper Christian response in gratitude to the gospel. So I think at least one and hopefully more of those will prove to be relevant as we work through the text. In your insert, I'd like you to follow along. As I follow along through the text of Jude, you'll notice that I've placed different sections together in paragraphs, just so you know, it's called chunking, and I put those together for thematic interests. So along the way, I will stop uh, after I seek to exposit a part of the text, and I'm gonna talk about application and contemporary relevance, and then we'll continue to work work through the text. Okay, so we have Jude, verse one and two. And I'll read it, and then I'll comment. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So here at the beginning, we see Jude describes himself in two ways. Number one, he is a bond servant. We could also say a bond slave for Christ. That is a prized description for Old Testament saints and leaders. It's a prized self-description For those in the New Testament, the apostles, primarily Peter and Paul, glory in being a bond slave of Jesus Christ, as well as James and here Jude as well. 
Those of you who know the Heidelberg Catechism, being a bondservant of Jesus Christ is actually your greatest comfort. What is your only comfort in life and death? That you're not your own, but you belong, body and soul and life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you might ask, well, how is Jude going to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ? By through the Spirit delivering this letter to the church and to us today. So that's the first description. His second description is that he's a brother of James. We know very little about Jude, very little about him, who he's writing to at the time when he's writing. We're not going to concern ourselves with those uh, background issues. But if we follow the canon of Scripture, Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 13, as well as Acts chapter 15, we understand that this Jude is the brother of James. The unadorned James can only be one James, which is the leader of the Jerusalem church that we read about in Acts chapter 15. So there's a biological link there between Jude and James. That's of some interest to us, but of more interest to us today is beyond a biological link, there's a thematic link that ties James and Jude together. Well, what do I mean? Well, if you've ever read James, you know you're in for a treat because James is going to press the law of God upon people on every page of his letter, convicting them of their sin, both sinners and saints. Page after page, exposing through the use of the law, people's sin. And as we've read this today, you can see that's the same posture that Jude takes as well. We don't want to discount the law of God. Of course, we confessed our sins and had the public reading of God's law. But why is the law so important for Jude and for James? We'll see why as the letter develops. But we can first ask this question. What must you know to live and die in this comfort? Three things. Number one, how great my sin and misery are. Well, how do you know your sin and misery? Out of the law of God. So Jude is going to begin where the apostles begin, which is to press the law of God, both upon saints and upon sinners. And as a matter of fact, much of his letter, much like James's letter, is devoted to pressing the law of God upon people. If you're looking at Jude there, you can see verses 5 through 19 is really a pressing in upon the law for the people of God. So Jude, like James, will principally employ the Old Testament law. It's to expose people's sin, but it's also to demonstrate God's just judgment against people who break his law. So be aware of that as we work through verses 5 through 19. Jude has no problem expounding, expositing the law. And of course, when the law is heard well, exposing our sin and judgment apart from Christ, it drives us to the gospel, to embrace Christ, because that is our second and most pure comfort, that we belong to him. So if we map out Jude thematically, he begins with the gospel in verses 1 through 2. And that's important for us to keep in mind. So as we work through the law, keep in mind he's just given us the gospel. That's important for you today who are saints. We'll look at that in a moment. So he begins with the gospel in verses 1 through 2. Then he presses the law in verses 5 through 19. And of course, after you have law and gospel, you have gratitude. Gratitude is 20 through 23. We'll look at that. And then he's going to end again, bookend his letter with the good news of the gospel in 24 to 25. So that's just a brief overview of the way the letter works. Speaking of New Testament letters, very briefly, 
New Testament letters are Greco-Roman letters. They operate essentially the same way. They start with a greeting. You see that in verses 1 through 2. Sometimes if they're rhetorical speeches, they'll give what's called a narration and a proposition, what we call a thesis, which is the bulk, the contours, the map, the outline of the letter. Here Jude will do that in verses uh, 3 and 4. And then from there he's going to give us proofs that establish that main concept in verses 3 through 4. And then he'll end, of course, with a final greeting. But interestingly enough, it's not a greeting, it's a doxology. And we're going to see why that's so important for Jude's audience, to end with a doxology, not a greeting. In verse 1, we have the first of several of Jude's triads. So a triad is a threefold repetition or a threefold concept or theme. And here in verse 1, he describes the saints. He's described himself, and he'll describe the saints. They're called. God has called them by his sovereign pleasure and mercy. They are beloved in God, dear ones to him, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. That will be extremely relevant as the letter progresses. So Jude chooses very well descriptions of the saints to ground them in the world of God, not in the world of troubles around them. He continues, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, or we could say may it be given to the max, may it increase. This is God's storehouse of blessings in Christ. And Jude knows they specifically need mercy, peace, and love. They need God's mercy in their present circumstance. They need God's peace. They need God's love. But as we're going to see in Jude, he's also going to ask them to reflect God's character with other people. We'll see that in Jude 20 through 23. So they need to extend mercy, peace, and love to others as well. So it's interesting that Jude begins this letter, this thunderbolt of a letter, talking about false teachers, and he starts them right away in the good news of the gospel. So before trouble comes, Jude wants them to understand who they are in Christ. <clears throat> so that answers our first question. When troubling news inside the church appears, what's your anchor, your comfort, or the starting point for a proper response? What is it? The good news of the gospel. Who are you in Christ? Uh, that's the only way we can station, stabilize, ground ourselves in trouble. That's ahead. Uh, now we turn to verse 3 through 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, which were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. As you can see in verse 3, Jude's principle and desired focus is just to contemplate and to cherish the beauty of the gospel. And before he gives them troubling news, he wants to ground them in the good news of the gospel. But what's important to note here is that they have to contend earnestly for the faith. We're just going to look at that phrase for a moment. Contend earnestly means it's a struggle. It's toil. It's difficult. It's not a walk in the park. You don't wake up and say, I can't wait. This is just a natural reflex. So we have to contend earnestly, and you'll notice what's attached to that is the faith. It's not faith, as in my faith or my subjective experience. It is the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is a body of doctrine and truth that's been handed down through all time, principally revealed by our chief prophet and teacher, Jesus Christ. Most clearly revealed through Christ, the history, the, the, the truth of our redemption, and then delivered to us through the apostles. 
Now, what is that body of truth? Well, it's the summary of apostolic doctrine. The Heidelberg Catechism is actually quite nice with this because it asks the question, what then is necessary for a Christian to believe? What is that that has been handed down for all time? And you know what the answer is? All that's promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith teach us in summary. What's the summary? The Apostles' Creed. So the faith we would summarize, the Heidelberg does, as the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then it addresses issues of Christ and, of course, the Spirit and the Church and eschatology. Now, you might say, but that's not Scripture. So that's fine. Uh, while Jerusalem Church encourages you to cherish the Apostles' Creed and to memorize it, you could memorize apostolic instruction. And that would be perfectly fine, and we would be delighted with that. But the nice thing about the Apostles' Creed is it summarizes for us apostolic instruction. But if you would like to today, you can memorize Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 13, a part of Acts chapter 14, and also Acts chapter 17. That would be essentially the Apostles' Creed. So most people don't care to memorize all of that, so it's a little easier to memorize simply the Apostles' the Apostles' Creed. What's important to note, though, is that far from theology being boorish, it's actually the lifeblood of the church. It's actually the hallmark of authentic Christianity. And I know that's under attack today because most people say the, the mark of authentic Christianity is my personal experience. But if it's not grounded in the propositional truth of the gospel, you're floundering in a sea of shifting cultural changes. And that's a dangerous place to be. So Jude has them contend for the faith and it's an urgent need. And now he'll explain why. Because ungodly people, the Greek word as a sebes, means irreverence for God, having no thought for him. It's Jude's favorite word, ungodly, for these individuals. Have crept in, they've wormed their way in, they've smuggled their way in is the way the word is used sometimes in the Greek. They've infiltrated among the saints, and that's a cause for concern because false teaching isn't always something that knocks on your door and says, I'm a false teacher, I want to pervert the gospel. That's not the way it happens. It typically is within the church. Paul warns about this in Acts chapter 20, that there'll be among the sheep, there'll be wolves who arise. So this is a real cause for concern. Jude's audience is well maybe not aware of this, this infiltration of ungodly teachers. Jerusalem church today, <laughs> we need to be aware that this occurs time and time again. And of course, the only way to ground ourselves well with this is to know the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the truth of Jesus Christ? Now, they've turned the grace of God to licentiousness. Licentiousness is a word we typically don't use, but it just simply means unrestrained or unhindered vices or the pursuit of self-seeking vices. Now, this is where we get to the issue of what are those twin dangers in the church where people pervert the gospel. So very briefly, there are two that we see throughout the New Testament and we see through church history. One is legalism. It's a perversion of the gospel, saying, I want to merit God's favor apart from Christ. I want to merit God's favor on my own. What it does essentially is makes little of the law and little of sin and much of self. So it makes the law and sin little. License is the other danger. It says, I've been forgiven, I can live as I please. And it makes law and sin light and laughable. It doesn't matter. I'm not concerned for judgment. I'm forgiven. 
I have pure grace, unrestrained. It forgets the fact that when Christ saves you, redeems you, he also renews you by his spirit after his own image. So those are the twin dangers that have continually threatened the church when it comes to the gospel. Both are deep perversions of the gospel. You're going to see different apostles in the New Testament address those at different times in different places. Jude is addressing, as you can see here, not the issue of legalism necessarily, but the issue of license. People who say, by God's grace, I can live as I please. That's a danger within the church today as well. So Jude is going to address that. Both of these dangers pervert the gospel because they make much of man and little of Christ. So if there's no law, there can be no gospel. So Jude rightly begins to say, perversion of the gospel, license, let's let the law do its work. Let's expose sin and show that sure judgment follows for those who reject Christ. So Jude is very wise to do that as well as we are today. Now let me give you an illustration kind of to map out the way Jude works here. It can be a little confusing with the details. He's told them that the gospel is beautiful. He says, I want to talk about the gospel. Then he tells them you have to contend for the gospel because these infiltrators have come in. So here's an illustration. I know it's imperfect, but let's imagine you are in an art museum. And in the art museum, you're walking through different rooms and you come into this one room. There's just one picture on the wall. You stop in and you say to yourself, that's a beautiful picture. You look at it for a moment and then you leave. But there's something very captivating about the picture. And so you come back. As a matter of fact, most of your day is spent staring at the picture. You're starting to like this picture. You're starting to cherish this picture. You're starting to consider this picture from various angles. Other people are coming into the room. They're enjoying the painting as well. But you just want to contemplate and consider this painting. Now, as Jude wants to, and as us the saints want to, we just want to contemplate and consider the beauty of the gospel. So Jude wants them to consider that as their grounding. The problem is, while considering and contemplating the beauty of the gospel is right and good, there are times where considering has to turn to contending. So imagine this, as you're staring at that cherished painting on the wall, a group of individuals come in and you notice that they have spray paint in their hands and a torch lamp and they look angry well your cherishing of let's say the gospel in this case the painting is going to have to turn rather quickly to a contending for the painting so you're going to have to resist the vandals and do something to hold up that picture in purity and to preserve it in integrity so this is what Judas having them do while he wants to spend time considering the depths of the beauty of the gospel the infiltrators are requiring them to do something here to hold the beauty of the gospel apart from false teachers who will pervert it. And that's the essence and the bulk of how the letter is going to progress. So I hope that helps you as you keep in mind what Jude is calling them to do with the good news of the gospel. So now we have verse 5 through 8. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who didn't keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since the, they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. 
Now, what Jude is doing is we, what we call in Jewish exegetical technique called the Midrash, which is where you, you provide an Old Testament text or a Jewish writing, and then you comment on it. So you'll see at the bottom of every one of these chunk sections, he gives Old Testament examples, typically a triad, which is three examples. You can see three examples here, Israel, angels, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he's going to say, these people are just like them. Now, this is the way Jude's letter is going to progress from 5 through 19. And you have to ask yourself, why is he doing this for so long? Well, part of it is for the sinners, the ungodly, and the church, letting the law convict them deeply to show them that if you're mocking at God's law and living as you please, there will be a sure and just judgment. But part of it is for the saints. Now, imagine with the painting, if you are looking at these vandals as kindergartners, no big deal. Kindergartners coming in, I can hold them off. They're not a big deal, no issue. But imagine there's a pause and a museum curator comes in and says, you see these vandals? Let me give you a quick history about the history of vandalism and the history of the world. Some of the greatest things have been vandalized by the most in in infamous vandalists of all time. So they walk you through, let's say the 10th century BC, this person destroyed this, has been hated ever since and faced this type of a judgment. In the 5th century BC, this person did this to vandalize, despised, rejected, and they faced this severe consequence. And these are the worst of the worst. Now, what is Jude doing by bringing out the worst of the worst in Old Testament history? He's telling these, his saints, this is a serious, urgent matter. They're not kindergartners. What you're seeing in the church is just like a long line of false teachers who have infiltrated and invaded the church. And these are the infamous ones in redemptive history. It really presses them to contend for the truth of the gospel, knowing how urgent and serious this matter is. It certainly encourages them to reject the false teachers, to mark them off, and to approach them with great fear as they hold to the truth of the gospel. Now, one thing you'll notice which is very interesting, maybe perhaps troubling, is Jude's theology of the church. So if we just take the example of Israel, Israel was saved out of Egypt. They all enjoyed the Passover meal. They all were baptized in the same baptism through the Red Sea. Paul's going to mention this in Corinthians. But yet, as Jude reminds us, with many of them, God was not pleased. Some were saved, all of them were saved, and afterwards, many of them were destroyed. What is the relevance of that? Well, within our church, false teachers can arise, but they participate in the same things we participate in. They could very well be baptized. As we see in Jude, they're having love feasts, which presumably included the Lord's Supper. And there's such a thing as being an external member of God's covenant community and being an internal member of God's covenant community. Paul will talk about this in Romans 3. He's not a Jew, which is one outwardly, but he's a Jew, which is one inwardly. It's circumcision, not of the flesh, but a circumcision of the, of the heart. So within the church today, there should be no surprise. Jesus has warned us about this in the parable. There will be the wheat and there will be the weeds. And so Jude is putting out the siren call to tell them <laughs> these are very difficult people to mark. But simply being in the external covenant does not guarantee your status before God and must be embracing Christ by true faith. Uh, we would be remiss as elders if we said we had just assumed that everyone at Jerusalem Church is a believer. 
That isn't the example that we see in the New Testament with its narratives, with Paul's call, with Peter's call, with Jude's call. So when we preach, we're preaching to saints and sinners. And so for some of you, as you work through Jude, we're hoping that Jude convicts and reproves of sin and, and scares and terrifies you with God's sure judgment against breaking his law. For saints, of course, the law convicts, but what it does is tell us, I am so glad for the gospel, and I want to contend for this. I'm so glad he rescued me from this, and, and I wasn't destroyed, but I was delivered. Uh, the angels is an important note for Jude. Presumably, these people given to license are reviling angels. They have no respect for authority. And of course, angels have a significant amount of authority. It may well be the case, and this could be your lunch chewing on, the reason he brings up angels is because in the Jewish tradition, and also we see in the New Testament, the angels were the very ones who delivered God's law. So by rejecting angels, they're essentially saying, I have nothing to do, I want nothing to do with God's law. So Jude brings up that example. Now in all three examples, you see that these people had privileged positions, didn't they? God was gracious to them. Israel, God was very gracious to the angels, and they rejected what God had given to them. Turning to verse 9, so here's his next example. Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Now this could be a little troubling because this is a text you might not have heard of before. So there's two options here. It's either a composite of texts thrown together that Jude assumes his audience knows. That would be Jewish traditions, Zechariah 3, and the book of Enoch, which is fond for Jude. He'll use that. Of course, it's extra-canonical. It's non-canonical. It's not inspired scripture. But he has no problem saying, I'm giving you scripture. Now let me give you an example from the literature of the day. Um, or it could be a pseudepigraphal writing, uh, a writing ascribed to an individual which they didn't actually write. It's called The Testament or the Assumption of Moses. So just very briefly, in that writing, from as far as we can gather, it appears that there was an encounter between Michael the archangel and the devil. The devil approached Michael and said, I want Moses' body. Why would you want his body? Because, well, the devil's argument would be Moses was a murderer, so his body belongs to me. Now, Michael could have very well entered into that and <laughs> slandered, accused, reviled the devil as the father of murder and lies, but he doesn't. He points to God and says, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't enter into it with him. He lets God take care of the matter. But the, and that's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Michael doesn't revile angelic authorities, how much should men not do the same? Now, this might be a little bit of stepping on toes, so take it for what it's worth. But is it the case that uh, people are very flippant with God's law and even with angels? Uh, growing up, we had a song called, If the Devil Doesn't Like It, right? He can sit on attack. So is that, is that a true, proper response to angelic authorities? What does that say about our hearts, about our place as mortal creatures under God's authority and, and command? Uh, verse 11 is going to continue on here with another triad. This time it's going to bring in more infamous individuals, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Woe to them, they have gone the way of Cain. They, and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. 
These are men who are hidden feasts in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Now Jude gets into very, very figurative language. Uh, they're clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So now Jude brings in another infamous triad, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. All three were known not only to reject authority, but actually to lead others into sin as well. And this is why people call them false teachers, because they're sins of the tongue that now appear. So we've seen rejecting authorities, we've seen sexual immorality, we've seen disbelief, but now they're instructing other people in, in sin. Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, actually says that Cain was an instructor in wicked practices. Balaam, in Numbers 22 through 24, actually led Israel to idolatry and sexual immorality, and the consequence was extremely grave. And of course, Korah said, we don't have to obey the authority of Moses and Joshua. We want to be leaders on our own. And all three suffered severe judgment for that, particularly Korah. And Judah has no problem with that. If you remember the issue of Korah, he was actually, and all of those committed to him, swallowed alive by the earth, which is a horrible end. And again, keep in mind that Jude is letting the law be the law, exposing sin, but also talking about the punishment for rejecting God's law. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, will God allow such apostasy and rebellion to go unpunished? And the answer, no way. <laughs> for he's terribly displeased with our inborn and actual sins and will punish them in just judgment in time and eternity. As it's written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So Jude certainly is pressing here the force of the law, exposing their sin, but even more showing that sure judgment awaits these who are ungodly. And again, this is making Jude saints to say, I want to contend for the faith. This is an urgent matter, a severe issue. Uh, this vivid language that you're going to see in verse 12 through 13, as I mentioned, is some of the most vivid figures of speech in the New Testament. These godless people in their midst share in the most intimate of meals, presumably the Lord's Supper, and they do it without irreverence. They do it with irreverence. They're deadly. They're without benefit. They're barren. They're fruitless. They're tragic. They're comparable to destructive hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, nasty foaming waves, and wasted wandering stars. Jude's not being very kind, is he, in our cultural context? And he wants to, in no uncertain terms, express the benefit that these false teachers give when they pervert the gospel. Next, Jude will turn to a non-canonical text, first, uh, 1 Enoch 1.9, 1 um, and showcases what is true throughout the Old Testament. It says this, It was about, also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattery people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So in Jude's sketch now, we can step back and say, what are the sins? Well, we have pride, we have sexual immorality, we have disbelief, we have a lack of respect not just for angels, but for authority within, authority within the church, which actually appears to be a significant issue in the New Testament. This is why Peter and the apostles call on the saints to you know, submit to the elders, to respect those who are in authority. It's a significant problem in the church even, even today. They're divisive, and they're heretical instructors. And they follow in a long train of infamous, ungodly perverters of the gospel. 
verse 17 through 19, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Jude concludes with a climax, which is the apostolic instruction. You can see this in Acts chapter 20. And told them that these times were told about even by the apostles themselves. Which means there should be no surprise when there's infiltrators in the church. So Jerusalem Church. We should continually be considering and cherishing the beauty of the gospel, but ever ready to contend when it's challenged. When the Apostles' Creed is corrupted or perverted. Now, in the case of Judah, as I've mentioned, not every aspect of the Apostles' Creed has been distorted. What's been distorted in the Apostles' Creed? The forgiveness of sins. There are cases where false teachers will distort God the Father Almighty. They'll distort the truth of the Holy Spirit, the church, eschatology, and what have you. But here the issue is license, and so Judah attacks that with the Old Testament examples. Now we turn the page. Jude 20, figuratively speaking, turn the page, because things are different here. It says, But you, beloved, after they've seen the horrendous sin and judgment that awaits, he turns to them, Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Notice that he starts with the gospel again. Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Well, the perverters are seeking to distort the gospel. We need to rest assured that their doom awaits. But what are the saints to do among themselves? So this is where the gospel now turns to gratitude. Contending for the faith, now cherishing the faith, and responding right to the faith. So 20 through 23, Jude turns to gratitude. Gratitude flows from the gospel. And now they have seen the beauty of the gospel. They want to contend and they want to cherish it because they see what the law does apart from Christ. So, as the Heidelberg is very reflective of the Heidelberg, the Heidelberg says two things. Gratitude, prayer, and God's commands, the Ten Commandments. And you're going to see that here. In John 15, 10, it says, I've loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So keeping God's commandments is abiding in his love. And then you have the note of prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit. So beginning with the gospel, we are built up in the gospel as a metaphor for a building, prayer, and following God's commands. Uh, we also see a triad here. We have faith, hope, and love. Faith, building themselves up on the gospel. Love, responding in, God, in gratitude to God in prayer. And hope, looking out eagerly ahead for the consummation. The dying to our sin and the entering into eternal life. Our prayers are responses to God to help us to cherish and to love the gospel. To give us grace in your Holy Spirit to live in good works for glory for you and for our neighbor. Why the eschatological turn for Jude? Why waiting for the coming of Christ? Well, because the sinners have one thing awaiting them, which is judgment. Not so the saints. They're waiting for the return of Christ, when there will be no more contending for the faith, just pure cherishing of the good news of the gospel. 
So that's a beautiful triad. So saints, an easy way to respond to God in gratitude. Keep considering the beauty of the gospel. From that spring will flow prayer, responding to God. Thank you for the gospel. Give me more grace to see the treasure of your son, to respond properly. And I'm looking forward to the day when this battle against sin and false teachers is done. It's a beautiful, simple way to approach God in gratitude. Now, this is very interesting, 22 through 23. Jude now turns to what the infiltration has done in the church. He says, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Remarkably, even though Jude has just denounced the false teachers in the strongest language possible in the New Testament, he turns and offers faith, hope, and love. Have mercy on those with whom false teaching has spread like gangrene. And that requires a great deal of wisdom. Fear, delicate situation. His hyperbole, even the garment has been polluted by the flesh. In the Old Testament with the lepers, their garments are polluted. Take great care, but respond to those who are being dragged aside and wandering into perversions of the gospel. Sometimes that means taking someone out for coffee. Sometimes it means just grabbing them and saying, you have to stop. So we want to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Now we turn to the end of Jude, the doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Now if you step back and say, what has Jude said to his audience? We have a major problem. Infiltrators in the church perverting the gospel. And they're really bad. Cain, Balaam, Korah, the angels. This is a very bad situation. And in your response... You have to delicately draw these people back. Now, let's be honest, in and of ourselves, that's a mission impossible. We can't do it. We'll never do it. But remember, Jude has begun with God keeping us and enabling us, and so he ends here with a doxology to God alone. He is our only treasure and comfort. We are so weak in ourselves that we can't even for a moment stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we pray earnestly that God would give us his spirit to allow us to continually cherish and to contend for the truth of the gospel. So saints, when troubling news inside the church appears, what's your comfort and your anchor? The gospel. Apart from it, you'll flounder and fall. What are the twin dangers that threaten the church? Legalism and license. Perversions of the gospel. So we start with the law, we let the law do its work and lead people to the truth of Christ. What's the essential apostolic response? Law and gospel. Is the creeping in of false teachers a new phenomenon? Absolutely not. Should Jerusalem church be taken by surprise? Absolutely not. And what is the essence of gratitude? Building ourselves up in faith, we respond in prayer, following God's commands, loving our neighbor, and looking forward to the day when the battle is over.